Well, please turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. This will be one of the passages that we will be considering as we focus our attention upon the themes and the truth that is presented for us in Article 2 of the Belgic Confession. So Psalm 19. This morning we'll be reading the entirety of this chapter. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 14. Well, please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them." And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, please also look with me in your order of worship under the confessional reading element. This morning we'll be reciting, confessing together Article 2 from the Belgic Confession. Article 2 from the Belgic Confession. Again, one of, the, one, of the, one of the definitions of what it means to be confessional or to be a confessional church is that we allow these historic confessions of faith, which are themselves under and subservient to the Word of God, to tell us what, what, what the most important doctrines in Scripture are. Uh, these are the mountain peaks of, of Scripture that we are to latch onto as the people of God. So we'll be reading together Belgic Confession, Article 2. So Christian, how do you know God? We know Him by two means— First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book 
in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God, His eternal power and His divinity, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.20. All these things are enough to convict men and to leave them without excuse. Second, He makes Himself known to us more openly by His holy and divine Word as much as we need in this life for His glory and for salvation of His own. Let us pray and ask that the Lord would bless our consideration of His Word this morning. Merciful Father, we thank You that uh, you have not remained hidden, but you have revealed yourself to us. And as we consider the ways in which you reveal yourself to us this morning, we pray that you would bless bless our consideration of your word. We, we know that you tell us that your word is effectual, effectual to create new life within us, effectual to create faith and, and to continue to sustain that same faith. Oh Lord, we pray that we would believe these promises and we pray that you would fulfill these promises in our own midst in this moment. We ask all of these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, boys and girls, if you remember uh, from the past couple of weeks, what are we called to do with our hearts? Remember that first line of the first article. Yes, Matthias. Believe with our hearts, and what are we to do with our mouths? Annabelle? Confess. That was a little bit more difficult, from, but last week we considered uh, uh, who is God. And there were three S words. Three S words. Do you remember any of those S words? Does anyone else remember those S? Matthias? Annabelle? Simple. God is a single, simple, spiritual being. That is who God is as he reveals himself to us in his word. And now today we are going to consider another very important question. How do we know God? How do we know God? Now, the assumption behind this question, the assumption behind this article is that we can know God. This is something that we should not take for granted. In Isaiah 55, God says, he says, my ways are not your ways. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. For as high as the heavens are above the earth... So are my ways and my thoughts higher and greater than your ways and your thoughts. Elsewhere in scripture, God says, I'm not like man that I should change my mind. In these verses and elsewhere, God is reminding us that there is a qualitative, not just quantitative, but qualitative distinction between God's being and our being between God's thoughts or his knowledge and our thoughts or knowledge, between God's ways and our ways. There's a great chasm that exists between the creator and the creature. Now this, of course, begs the question, how then can the creature have any real knowledge of the creator? How can the finite have any real knowledge of the infinite? How can the mutable have any knowledge of the immutable? 
The answer to these questions lies not in us ascending to God, but in God descending to us, and God accommodating himself to us, and God condescending to us in our finitude and weakness. God condescends to us like a father getting down on one knee and speaking to his young child. I mentioned last week that Calvin referred to God's revelation, his accommodated revelation, as baby talk. You know, it's like when you are trying to explain the very complex things you do at work to the mind of a three- or four-year-old. You're, of course, simplifying your language using metaphors and analogies. This is how we should respond, uh, understand God's revelation to us. It's accommodated revelation. God fits his revelation so that we as finite weak and frail creatures can understand something of his incomprehensible character. Or to switch metaphors for a moment, uh, you know, just, just like it is literally impossible for us as humans to experience the essence of the sun without being destroyed, um, it's impossible. We can't. So how do we experience the sun? Well, we experience the rays of the sun, in a similar way, if God were to reveal himself as he is in himself, we would not be able to handle it as finite, weak creatures. And therefore, God accommodates himself to our weakness. We experience the rays of his essence, as it were. And so how do we know God? We know God through his accommodated revelation. We know God through his accommodated revelation in creation and scripture. We know God through his accommodated revelation in creation and scripture. So first, let's consider how, how God reveals himself to us in creation. Now, you'll notice that the Belgic Confession here uses the metaphor or illustration of a book to describe how God reveals himself in creation. The, the confession talks about how creation is like the most elegant book in which all creatures are like letters that point to the invisible attributes of God. Now, this is a, a really helpful metaphor for us to consider. Words. What, what are words? Words are merely signs that point to some greater reality. You know, boys and girls, when you are reading a book and you come across the word C-A-T, what image pops into your mind? Do you think of a mountain or an ocean or an airplane? No, you think of a little furry creature. You think of a cat. Words point to some greater reality. And so what the confession is teaching us here is that when we witness the various aspects of creation, the rain, the vegetation, the mountains, the the ocean, all of these things are signs, reminders of God. Like words pointing us to some greater reality. So in this sense, creation is like this most elegant book that point us to the invisible attributes of God. And so it can be helpful for us to think about creation as a book. The book of creation. And so what does creation reveal about God? Well, to answer this question, the confession, as you can see, quotes a portion from Romans chapter 1. I'd like us to listen to the, a broader passage 
found in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. The confession just quotes or alludes to verse 20, but I'd like to, to consider the previous two verses as well. So Paul says, beginning in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. In these verses then, what does creation reveal about God? Well, creation reveals the existence of God. Creation reveals the power of God. Creation reveals the divinity of God. Creation even reveals the holiness of God. As Paul will go on to say a chapter later in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, that all people, Jew and Gentile alike, have God's holy law written upon our hearts. Well, in addition to the Psalm 19, verse 1, which we previously read, speaks about how creation reveals the glory of God. So David says in verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. John Calvin, reflecting upon this, speaks about creation as being the theater the theater of the glory of God. In fact, he, he says, Whatever, wherever you cast your eyes, there is no spot in the universe wherein you cannot discern at least some sparks of his glory. Creation is the theater of the glory of God. Now, Paul in Romans chapter 1 is very clear that this knowledge of God, this knowledge of his existence, this knowledge of his glory and power and divinity, this knowledge of God is revealed to all people. Notice what he says in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Even the most ardent atheist knows God's exist, knows God exists. Now, what do we as fallen creatures do with this natural knowledge of God, this, this sense of divinity, as Calvin speaks of? Well, we suppress this knowledge. We suppress this truth in unrighteousness. Our sinful nature seeks to constantly suppress the truth of God, the knowledge of God, in unrighteousness. Now, why? Why does God bother revealing himself in creation in the first place? Why does God give us this most elegant book, as our confession says? What are the purposes of this book of Revelation? What are the purposes of God's revelation in creation? Well, again, Paul is yet again very clear here in Romans chapter 1. He says that the purpose of this revelation is that all humanity would be without excuse before his judgment. 
No one will be able to approach God's judgment throne at the end of the age and say, well, well God, I just, didn't, I just didn't know that you existed. God is going to respond and say, nonsense. I gave you this most elegant book. I gave you all of these words of creation that point to my existence, my power, my divinity, and my glory. Indeed, God even reveals to all mankind a path to salvation. God reveals to all humanity, even those who've never read scripture, a path to salvation. The path of personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. There are two paths to salvation. There are two paths to eternal life. The one path is personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. The second path is faith in Christ who personally, perfectly, and perpetually obeys for us. Now, the, the, the problem of us not being able to personally, perfectly, and perpetually obey God, that's not God's problem, that's our problem. So God reveals himself sufficiently to mankind so that we are without excuse before his judgment. Now, another purpose of this book of Revelation, another purpose of God's revelation and creation is for us specifically as believers to be reminded of God's fatherly providence. So another purpose of this book of creation is for us as believers to be reminded of God's fatherly providence. Jesus makes this point in, in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, or he calls upon his disciples to look at the lilies of the field and, and the birds of the air. Again, some of the most insignificant parts of this creation. And, and, he, and he asks them, does not God provide for, for the lilies and the sparrows? If God provides for the lilies and the sparrows, will he not also provide for you who are an image bearer of God? So Jesus is urging us, telling us, to be aware, mindful, and attentive to creation for the purpose of being reminded of God's fatherly care and provision. And so creation serves as, as words that point us to God's fatherly care, to God's fatherly provision of us, both body and soul. So do you view creation in this way? Does creation itself serve as a reminder, as a sign, as words that, that point you to the God of all providence, point you to a heavenly father who delights to provide for the needs of his children. Well, God not only reveals himself in the book of creation, but God also reveals himself in another book, a literal book, the book of scripture. Now, if God reveals himself primarily as creator and sustainer in the book of creation, what does the book of Scripture reveal about God? Well, first of all, what is absolutely distinctive about the book of Scripture is its revelation about God as Redeemer. It's revelation about God's plan of salvation in Christ. That is a message that you will find nowhere in creation. This is what makes Scripture absolutely distinctive when compared to the revelation that we have in creation. But second, 
Scripture also more fully reveals God's identity as creator and sustainer. Notice the language of the confession when it says that God makes himself known to us more openly by his holy and divine word as much as we need in this life and for his glory. So he more openly reveals himself as creator and sustainer in Scripture. So first we see that Scripture reveals God as redeemer. Scripture reveals God's plan of salvation located, focused upon our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you may have noticed in Psalm 19 that David uses multiple titles for God. In verses 1 through 6, as David is speaking about God's creation, he uses the generic title for God, El, which is translated into English as just God. But then in verses 7 through 14, as David is speaking about God's written revelation, the law or the Torah, God's written revelation, he uses God's special name Yahweh, which is then rendered into English as Lord in all caps. This title refers to how God is specifically a covenant-keeping God to the church. Israel in the Old Testament and the New Covenant uh, Church in the New Testament. This then seems to suggest that, that David believes that God's existence is revealed in creation while God's special covenantal love is revealed in, in Scripture. Or to put it another way, God as Redeemer, God's plan of salvation are revealed in Scripture. Now, why is it so easy for us as Christians to feel as if we are under God's condemnation? Maybe not that we're destined for hell, but God's just not quite pleased with us. Why is it that it's so easy to, to, to feel haunted by the guilt, the guilt of, of sin? Why is it so easy to slip into a mode of thinking that, be, that believes that we need to do our part to stay in God's good graces? Well, it's because the law of God is natural to us. It's because the law of God is written upon our heart. It's because we have echoing in our conscience this statement and promise of the law, do this and live. We're hardwired for law. Again, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, 15, that all people, even the Gentiles who have never read of the Old Testament scriptures, have God's law imprinted upon their hearts and minds. The gospel is completely unnatural to us. We do not have the gospel written upon our hearts by virtue of creation. You know, the law says, now to the one who works, his wages will be counted not as a gift, but as his due. That's what the law says. The gospel says, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith will be counted as righteousness. This promise of the gospel completely cuts against the grain of our nature. This is precisely why we need the gospel preached into us week in and week out. It does not come natural to us. In fact, in, in Romans chapter 1, 
the Apostle Paul is speaking about his desire to visit the church in Rome in person. And he also tells us why he is eager to visit them in person. The reason why Paul, in Romans 1, is eager to visit the church in Rome in person is so that he might preach the gospel to them. According to the mind of the apostle, of all the things that this early infantile church of Rome needs to hear, and we could probably think of dozens of things that they would have needed to hear. How to live as salt and light in the midst of a a secular, secular sexualized age. How to fight sin. Church polity. The list could go on and on. But according to the apostle, of first importance is the gospel. And these are believers that he's speaking to. This, in part, is why in our service we have the declaration of pardon. So that there can be multiple, multiple proclamations of the gospel within our own service. Within our own service, we hear the gospel in the declaration of pardon. We hear it in the preaching of God's word, and and we also experience it in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Our service is constructed in this format because we believe that the gospel is not something that we move on from. It's not something that we graduate from. It's something that we as Christians need every day of our lives. In fact, our growth in faith will be commensurate with our growth in our understanding of the gospel. So we need the gospel. We need this main message of Scripture that God desires to save sinners through the seed of the woman. So Scripture reveals God as Redeemer. Well, Scripture also more fully reveals God as Creator and Sustainer. Now, John Calvin, as he's reflecting upon this point, he he gives us a very helpful illustration. He talks about just as a, a man, just as if there's a, a man who has poor or weak vision, that man's going to struggle to make out the words in a book. So too, sin has impaired our spiritual vision. So that when we look out into creation, our theological vision is blurry and fuzzy. Therefore, scripture functions as spectacles, glasses that allows us to see creation as God intends us to see creation. It gives us that theological foundation for God's book of creation, that this is actually God's creation. It helps us see the telos of creation, which is the glory of God and new creation. And therefore, scripture functions as spectacles, allowing us to see creation in focus. Well, Scripture also enables us to more clearly see God's law. Now, as I already mentioned, we have God's law written upon our hearts as image bearers of God, and therefore as image bearers of God. All people have a basic sense of morality. Why is that the case? Well, it's due to God's common grace, him preserving that remnant of his law upon our hearts. However, because of our sin, our natural inclination is to twist and pervert that law that's been written upon our hearts. And therefore, Scripture, again, functions as spectacles to allow us to see the law of God more fully, more clearly, as God wants us to see it. And so, beloved, how how do we know God? Well, we know God through his accommodated revelation. His accommodated revelation in the book of creation and 
in the book of Scripture. Now, in the subsequent weeks, we are going to be turning our attention to this book of Scripture. What do we believe about Scripture? Is this a book composed by human authors, or is this a book composed by God himself? What authority does Scripture have? Is it the only authority in the church? Why do we have the book that we have? Did God put these books in our Bible, or did the church decide what books are going to be in our canon of Scripture? These are the questions that we'll be turning our attention to in the upcoming weeks. So let us pray.